Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight I read Washington Square by Henry James. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 During a portion of the first half of the present century, and more particularly during the latter part of it, there flourished and practiced in the city of New York a physician who enjoyed perhaps an exceptional share of the consideration which in the United States has always been bestowed upon distinguished members of the medical profession. This profession in America has constantly been held in honor, 
and more successfully than elsewhere, has put forward a claim to the epithet of liberal. In a country in which to play a social part you must either earn your income or make believe that you earn it, the healing art has appeared in a high degree to combine two recognized sources of credit. It belongs to the realm of the practical, which in the United States is a great recommendation, and it is touched by the light of science, a merit appreciated in a community in which the love of knowledge has not always been accompanied by leisure and opportunity. It was an element in Dr. Sloper's reputation that his learning and his skill were very evenly balanced. He was what you might call a scholarly doctor, and yet there was nothing abstract in his remedies. He always ordered you to take something. Though he was felt to be extremely thorough, he was not uncomfortably theoretic, and if he sometimes explained matters rather more minutely than might seem of use to the patient, he never went so far, like some practitioners one has heard of, as to trust to the explanation alone, but always left behind him an inscrutable prescription. There were some doctors that left the prescription without offering any explanation at all, and he did not belong to that class either, which was, after all, the most vulgar. It will be seen that I am describing a clever man, and this is really the reason why Dr. Sloper had become a local celebrity. At the time at which we are chiefly concerned with him, he was some fifty years of age, and his popularity was at its height. He was very witty, and he passed in the best society of New York for a man of the world, which indeed he was, in a very sufficient degree. I hasten to add, to anticipate possible misconception, that he was not the least of a charlatan. He was a thoroughly honest man, honest in a degree of which he had perhaps lacked the opportunity to give the complete measure. And, putting aside the great good nature of the circle in which he practiced, which was rather fond of boasting that it possessed the brightest doctor in the country, he daily justified his claim to the talents attributed to him by the popular voice. He was an observer, even a philosopher, and to be bright was so natural to him, and, as the popular voice said, came so easily, that he never aimed at mere effect, and had none of the little tricks and pretensions of second-rate reputations. It must be confessed that fortune had favoured him, and that he had found the path to prosperity very soft to his tread. He had married at the age of twenty-seven, for love, a very charming girl, Miss Catherine Harrington of New York, who, in addition to her charms, had brought him a solid dowry. Mrs. Loper was amiable, graceful, accomplished, elegant, and in 1820 she had been one of the pretty girls of the small but promising capital, which clustered about the battery and overlooked the bay, and of which the uppermost boundary was indicated by the grassy waysides of Canal Street. Even at the age of 27, Austin Sloper had made his mark sufficiently to mitigate the anomaly of his having been chosen among a dozen suitors by a young woman of high fashion who had $10,000 of income and the most charming eyes in the island of Manhattan. These eyes, and some of their accompaniments, were for about five years a source of extreme satisfaction to the young physician, who was both a devoted and very happy husband. The fact of his having married a rich woman made no difference in the line he had traced for himself, and he cultivated his profession with as definite a purpose as if he still had no other resources than his fraction of the modest patrimony which on his father's death he had shared with his brothers and sisters. 
This purpose had not been preponderantly to make money. It had been rather to learn something and to do something. To learn something interesting and to do something useful. This was, roughly speaking, the program he had sketched, and of which the accident of his wife having an income appeared to him in no degree to modify the validity. He was fond of his practice and of exercising a skill of which he was agreeably conscious. And it was so patent a truth that if he were not a doctor, there was nothing else he could be, that a doctor he persisted in being in the best possible conditions. Of course, his easy domestic situation saved him a good deal of drudgery, and his wife's affiliation to the best people brought him a good many of those patients whose symptoms are, if not more interesting in themselves than those of the lower orders, at least more consistently displayed. He desired experience, and in the course of twenty years he got a great deal. It must be added that it came to him in some forms which, whatever might have been their intrinsic value, made it the reverse of welcome. His first child, a little boy of extraordinary promise, as a doctor, who was not addicted to easy enthusiasms, firmly believed, died at three years of age, in spite of everything that the mother's tenderness and the father's science could invent to save him. Two years later, Mrs. Sloper gave birth to a second infant, an infant of a sex which rendered the poor child, to the doctor's sense, an inadequate substitute for his lamented firstborn, of whom he had promised himself to make an admirable man. The little girl was a disappointment, but this was not the worst. A week after her birth, the young mother, who, as the phrase is, had been doing well, suddenly betrayed alarming symptoms, and before another week had elapsed, Austin Sloper was a widower. For a man whose trade was to keep people alive, he had certainly done poorly in his own family, and a bright doctor who within three years loses his wife and his little boy should perhaps be prepared to see either his skill or his affection impugned. Our friend, however, escaped criticism. That is, he escaped all criticism but his own, which was much the most competent and most formidable. He walked under the weight of this very private censure for the rest of his days and bore forever the scars of a castigation to which the strongest hand he knew had treated him on the night that followed his wife's death. The world, which, as I have said, appreciated him, pitied him too much to be ironical. His misfortune made him more interesting and even helped him to be the fashion. It was observed that even medical families cannot escape the more insidious forms of disease, and that, after all, Dr. Sloper had lost other patients, beside the two I have mentioned, which constituted an honourable precedent. His little girl remained to him, and though she was not what he had desired, he proposed to himself to make the best of her. He had on hand a stock of unexpended authority, by which the child, in its early years, profited largely. She had been named, as a matter of course, after her poor mother, and even in her most diminutive babyhood, the doctor never called her anything but Catherine. She grew up a very robust and healthy child, and her father, as he looked at her, often said to himself that, such as she was, he at least need have no fear of losing her. I say such as she was, because, to tell the truth, but this is a truth of which I will defer the telling. Chapter 2 When the child was about ten years old, he invited his sister, Mrs. Penniman, to come and stay with him. The Miss Slopers had been but two in number, and both of them had married early in life. The younger, Mrs. Almond, by name, 
was the wife of a prosperous merchant and the mother of a blooming family. She bloomed herself, indeed, and was a comely, comfortable, reasonable woman, and a favourite with her clever brother, who in the matter of women, even when they were nearly related to him, was a man of distinct preferences. He preferred Mrs. Armand to his sister Lavinia, who had married a poor clergyman of a sickly constitution and a flowery style of eloquence, and then, at the age of thirty-three, had been left a widow, without children, without fortune, with nothing but the memory of Mr. Pennyman's flowers of speech, a certain vague aroma of which hovered about her own conversation. Nevertheless, he had offered her a home under his own roof, which Lavinia accepted with the alacrity of a woman who had spent the ten years of her married life in the town of Poughkeepsie. The doctor had not proposed to Mrs. Pennyman to come and live with him indefinitely. He had suggested that she should make an asylum of his house while she looked about for unfurnished lodgings. It is uncertain whether Mrs. Pennyman ever instituted a search for unfurnished lodgings, but it is beyond dispute that she never found them. She settled herself with her brother and never went away, and when Catherine was twenty years old, her Aunt Lavinia was still one of the most striking features of her immediate entourage. Mrs. Pennyman's own account of the matter was that she had remained to take charge of her niece's education. She had given this account at least to everyone but the doctor, who never asked for explanations which he could entertain himself any day with inventing. Mrs. Pennyman, moreover, though she had a good deal of a certain sort of artificial assurance, shrank, for indefinable reasons, from presenting herself to her brother as a fountain of instruction. She had not a high sense of humour, but she had enough to prevent her from making this mistake, and her brother, on his side, had enough to excuse her in her situation for laying him under contribution during a considerable part of a lifetime. He therefore assented tacitly to the proposition which Mrs. Penniman had tacitly laid down that it was of importance that the poor motherless girl should have a brilliant woman near her. His assent could only be tacit, for he had never been dazzled by his sister's intellectual luster. Save when he fell in love with Catherine Harrington, he had never been dazzled, indeed, by any feminine characteristics whatever, and though he was, to a certain extent, what is called a lady's doctor, his private opinion of the more complicated sex was not exalted. He regarded its complications as more curious than edifying, and he had an idea of the beauty of reason, which was, on the whole, meagerly gratified by what he observed in his female patients. His wife had been a reasonable woman, but she was a bright exception. Among several things that he was sure of, this was perhaps the principle. Such a conviction, of course, did little either to mitigate or to abbreviate his widowhood, and it set a limitation to his recognition, at best, of Catherine's possibilities and of Mrs. Penniman's ministrations. He nevertheless, at the end of six months, accepted his sister's permanent presence as an accomplished fact, and as Catherine grew older, perceived that there were, in effect, good reasons why she should have a companion of her own imperfect sex. He was extremely polite to Lavinia, scrupulously, formally polite. And she had never seen him in anger but once in her life, when he lost his temper in a theological discussion with her late husband. With her, he never discussed theology, nor indeed discussed anything. He contented himself with making known, very distinctly, in the form of a lucid ultimatum, his wishes with regard to Catherine. Once, when the girl was about twelve years old, he said to her, Try and make a clever woman of her, Lavinia. I should like her to be a clever woman. 
Mrs. Penniman at this looked thoughtful a moment. My dear Austin, she then inquired, do you think it is better to be clever than to be good? Good for what? asked the doctor. You are good for nothing unless you are clever. From this assertion, Mrs. Penniman saw no reason to dissent. She possibly reflected that her own great use in the world was owing to her aptitude for many things. Of course I wish Catherine to be good, the doctor said the next day, but she won't be any the less virtuous for not being a fool. I'm not afraid of her being wicked. She will never have the salt of malice in her character. She's as good as good bread, as the French say. But six years hence, I don't want to have to compare her to good bread and butter. Are you afraid she will turn insipid? My dear brother, it is I who supply the butter, so you needn't fear, said Mrs. Penniman, who had taken in hand the child's accomplishments, overlooking her at the piano, where Catherine displayed a certain talent, and going with her to the dancing class, where it must be confessed that she made but a modest figure. Mrs. Penniman was a tall, thin, fair, rather faded woman, with a perfectly amiable disposition, a high standard of gentility, a taste for light literature, and a certain foolish indirectness and obliquity of character. She was romantic, she was sentimental. She had a passion for little secrets and mysteries, a very innocent passion, for her secrets had hitherto always been as unpractical as adult eggs. She was not absolutely voracious, but this defect was of no great consequence, for she had never had anything to conceal. She would have liked to have a lover and to correspond with him under an assumed name and letters left at a shop. I'm bound to say that her imagination never carried the intimacy further than this. Mrs. Pennyman had never had a lover, but her brother, who was very shrewd, understood her turn of mind. When Catherine is about seventeen, he said to himself, Lavinia will try and persuade her that some young man with a moustache is in love with her. It will be quite untrue. No young man, with a moustache or without, will ever be in love with Catherine. But Lavinia will take it up and talk to her about it. Perhaps, even if her taste for clandestine operations doesn't prevail with her, she will talk to me about it. Catherine won't see it and won't believe it. Fortunately, for her peace of mind, poor Catherine isn't romantic. She was a healthy, well-grown child, without a trace of her mother's beauty. She was not ugly. She had simply a plain, dull, gentle countenance. The most that had ever been said for her was that she had a nice face, and though she was an heiress, no one had ever thought of regarding her as a belle. Her father's opinion of her moral purity was abundantly justified. She was excellently, imperbitably good, affectionate, docile, obedient, and much addicted to speaking the truth. In her younger years, she was a good deal of a romp, and, though it is an awkward confession to make about one's heroine, I must add that she was something of a glutton. She never that I know of stole raisins out of the pantry, but she devoted her pocket money to the purchase of cream cakes. As regards this, however, a critical attitude would be inconsistent with a candid reference to the early annals of any biographer. Catherine was decidedly not clever. She was not quick with her book, nor indeed with anything else. She was not abnormally deficient and she mustered learning enough to acquit herself respectably in conversation with her contemporaries, among whom it must be avowed, however, that she occupied a secondary place. It is well known that in New York it is possible for a young girl to occupy a primary one. Catherine, who was extremely modest, had no desire to shine, and on most social occasions, as they are called, you would have found her lurking in the background. She was extremely fond of her father, 
and very much afraid of him. She thought him the cleverest and handsomest and most celebrated of men. Poor girl found her account so completely in the exercise of her affections that the little tremor of fear that mixed itself with her filial passion gave the thing an extra relish rather than blunted its edge. Her deepest desire was to please him, and her conception of happiness was to know that she had succeeded in pleasing him. She had never succeeded beyond a certain point. Though, on the whole, he was very kind to her, she was perfectly aware of this, and to go beyond the point in question seemed to her really something to live for. What she could not know, of course, was that she disappointed him, though on three or four occasions the doctor had been almost frank about it. She grew up peacefully and prosperously, but at the age of 18, Mrs. Pettyman had not made a clever woman of her. Dr. Sloper would have liked to be proud of his daughter, but there was nothing to be proud of in poor Catherine. There was nothing, of course, to be ashamed of, but this was not enough for the doctor, who was a proud man and would have enjoyed being able to think of his daughter as an unusual girl. There would have been a fitness in her being pretty and graceful, intelligent and distinguished, for her mother had been the most charming woman of her little day, and as regards her father, of course, he knew his own value. He had moments of irritation at having produced a commonplace child, and even went so far at times as to take a certain satisfaction in the thought that his wife had not lived to find her out. He was naturally slow in making this discovery himself, and it was not till Catherine had become a young lady grown that he regarded the matter as settled. He gave her the benefit of a great many doubts. He was in no haste to conclude. Mrs. Penniman frequently assured him that his daughter had a delightful nature, but he knew how to interpret this assurance. It meant to his sense that Catherine was not wise enough to discover that her aunt was a goose, a limitation of mind that could not fail to be agreeable to Mrs. Penniman. Both she and her brother, however, exaggerated the young girl's limitations. For Catherine, though she was very fond of her aunt and conscious of the gratitude she owed her, regarded her without a particle of that gentle dread which gave its stamp to her admiration of her father. To her mind, there was nothing of the infinite about Mrs. Penniman. Catherine saw her all at once, as it were, and was not dazzled by the apparition, whereas her father's great faculties seemed, as they stretched away, to lose themselves in a sort of luminous vagueness, which indicated, not that they stopped, but that Catherine's own mind ceased to follow them. It must not be supposed that Dr. Sloper visited his disappointment upon the poor girl, or ever let her suspect that she had played him a trick. On the contrary, for fear of being unjust to her, he did his duty with exemplary zeal, and recognised that she was a faithful and affectionate child. Besides, he was a philosopher. He smoked a good many cigars over his disappointment, and in the fullness of time he got used to it. He satisfied himself that he had expected nothing, though, indeed, with a certain oddity of reasoning. I expect nothing, he said to himself, so that if she gives me a surprise, it will be all clear again. If she doesn't, there will be no loss. This was about the time Catherine had reached her eighteenth year, so that it will be seen her father had not been precipitate. At this time she seemed not only incapable of giving surprises, it was almost a question whether she could have received one. She was so quiet and irresponsive. People who expressed themselves roughly called her stolid. But she was irresponsive because she was shy, uncomfortably, painfully shy. This was not always understood, and she sometimes produced an impression of insensibility. In reality, she was the softest creature in the world.
Chapter 3 As a child, she had promised to be tall, but when she was sixteen she ceased to grow, and her stature, like most other points in her composition, was not unusual. She was strong, however, and properly made, and fortunately her health was excellent. It has been noted that the doctor was a philosopher, but I would not have answered for his philosophy if the poor girl had proved a sickly and suffering person. Her appearance of health constituted her principal claim to beauty, and her clear, fresh complexion, in which white and red were very equally distributed, was indeed an excellent thing to see. Her eye was small and quiet, her features were rather thick, her tresses brown and smooth. A dull, plain girl, she was called by rigorous critics, a quiet, ladylike girl, by those of the more imaginative sort, but by neither class was she very elaborately discussed. When it had been duly impressed upon her that she was a young lady, it was a good while before she could believe it, she suddenly developed a lively taste for dress. A lively taste is quite the expression to use. I feel as if I ought to write it very small. Her judgment in this matter was by no means infallible. It was liable to confusions and embarrassments. Her great indulgence of it was really the desire of a rather inarticulate nature to manifest itself. She sought to be eloquent in her garments and to make up for her diffidence of speech by a fine frankness of costume. But if she expressed herself in her clothes, it is certain that people were not to blame for not thinking her a witty person. It must be added that though she had the expectation of a fortune, Dr. Sloper for a long time had been making $20,000 a year by his profession and laying aside the half of it, the amount of money at her disposal was not greater than the allowance made to many poorer girls. In those days in New York, there were still a few altar fires flickering in the temple of Republican simplicity, and Dr. Sloper would have been glad to see his daughter present herself, with a classic grace, as a priestess of this mild faith. It made him fairly grimace in private to think that a child of his should be both ugly and overdressed. For himself, he was fond of the good things of life and he made a considerable use of them. But he had a dread of vulgarity, and even a theory that it was increasing in the society that surrounded him. Moreover, the standard of luxury in the United States thirty years ago was carried by no means so high as at present, and Catherine's clever father took the old-fashioned view of the education of young persons. He had no particular theory on the subject. It had scarcely as yet become a necessity of self-defense to have a collection of theories. It simply appeared to him proper and reasonable that a well-bred young woman should not carry half her fortune on her back. Catherine's back was a broad one and would have carried a good deal, but to the weight of the paternal displeasure she never ventured to expose it, and our heroine was twenty years old before she treated herself for evening wear. To a red satin gown trimmed with gold fringe, though this was an article which, for many years, she had coveted in secret. It made her look, when she sported it, like a woman of thirty, but oddly enough, in spite of her taste for fine clothes, she had not a grain of coquetry, and her anxiety when she put them on was as to whether they, and not she, would look well. It is a point in which history has not been explicit, but the assumption is warrantable. It was in the royal raiment just mentioned that she presented herself at a little entertainment given by her aunt, Mrs. Almond. The girl was at this time in her twenty-first year, and Mrs. Almond's party was the beginning of something very important. 
Some three or four years before this, Dr. Sloper had moved his household gods uptown, as they say in New York. He had been living ever since his marriage in an edifice of red brick with granite copings and an enormous fan light over the door, standing in a street within five minutes' walk of the city hall, which saw its best days, from the social point of view, about 1820. After this, the tide of fashion began to set steadily northward, as indeed in New York, thanks to the narrow channel in which it flows, is obliged to do, and the great hum of traffic rolled farther to the right and left of Broadway. By the time the doctor changed his residence, the murmur of trade had become a mighty uproar, which was music in the ears of all good citizens, interested in the commercial development, as they delighted to call it, of their fortunate isle. Dr. Sloper's interest in this phenomenon was only indirect. Though, seeing that, as the years went on, half his patients came to be overworked men of business, it might have been more immediate. And when most of his neighbor's dwellings, also ornamented with granite copings and large fan lights, had been converted into offices, warehouses, and shipping agencies, and otherwise applied to the base uses of commerce, he determined to look out for a quieter home. The ideal of quiet and of genteel retirement in 1835 was found in Washington Square, where the doctor built himself a handsome, modern, wide-fronted house with a big balcony before the drawing-room windows and a flight of marble steps ascending to a portal which was also faced with white marble. This structure, and many of its neighbours which it exactly resembled, were supposed, forty years ago, to embody the last results of architectural science, and they remain to this day very solid and honourable dwellings. In front of them was a square, containing a considerable quantity of inexpensive vegetation, enclosed by a wooden paling, which increased its rural and accessible appearance. And round the corner was the more august precinct of the Fifth Avenue, taking its origin at this point with a spacious and confident air, which already marked it for high destinies. I know not whether it is owing to the tenderness of early associations, but this portion of New York appears to many persons the most delectable. It has a kind of established repose, which is not of frequent occurrence in other quarters of the long, shrill city. It has a riper, richer, more honourable look than any of the upper ramifications of the great longitudinal thoroughfare. The look of having had something of a social history. It was here, as you might have been informed on good authority, that you had come into a world which appeared to offer a variety of sources of interest. It was here that your grandmother lived in venerable solitude and dispensed a hospitality which commended itself alike to the infant imagination and the infant palate. It was here that you took your first walks abroad, following the nursery maid with unequal step and sniffing up the strange odour of the alanthus trees which at that time formed the principal umbrage of the square, and diffused an order that you were not yet critical enough to dislike as it deserved. It was here, finally, that your first school, kept by a broad-bosomed, broad-based old lady with a fair rule, who was always having tea in a blue cup, with a saucer that didn't match, enlarged the circle both of your observations and your sensations. It was here, at any rate, that my heroine spent many years of her life which is my excuse for this topographical parenthesis. Mrs. Armand lived much further uptown in an embryonic street with a high number, a region where the extension of the city began to assume a theoretic air, where poplars grew beside the pavement when there was one, and mingled to their shade with the steep roofs of desultory Dutch houses, 
and where pigs and chickens disported themselves in the gutter. These elements of rural picturesqueness have now wholly departed from New York street scenery, but they were found within the memory of middle-aged persons in quarters which now would blush to be reminded of them. Catherine had a great many cousins, and with her aunt Almond's children, who ended by being nine in number, she lived on terms of considerable intimacy. When she was younger, they had been rather afraid of her. She was believed, as the phrase is, to be highly educated, and a person who lived in the intimacy of their aunt Penniman had something of a reflected grandeur. Mrs. Penniman, among the little almonds, was an object of more admiration than sympathy. Her manners were strange and formidable, and her mourning robes, she dressed in black for twenty years after her husband's death, and then suddenly appeared one morning with pink roses in her cap, were complicated in odd, unexpected places, with buckles, bugles, and pins, which discouraged familiarity. She took children too hard, both for good and for evil, and had an oppressive air of expecting subtle things of them, so that going to see her was a good deal like being taken to church and made to sit in a front pew. It was discovered after a while, however, that Aunt Penniman was but an accident in Catherine's existence, and not a part of its essence, and that when the girl came to spend a Saturday with her cousins, she was available for Follow My Master and even Leapfrog. On this basis, an understanding was easily arrived at, and for several years Catherine fraternized with her young kinsmen. I say young kinsmen because seven of the little almonds were boys, and Catherine had a preference for those games which are most conveniently played in trousers. By degrees, however, the little almonds' trousers began to lengthen, and the wearers to disperse and settle themselves in life. The elder children were older than Catherine, and the boys were sent to college or placed in counting rooms. Of the girls, one married very punctually, and the other as punctually became engaged. It was to celebrate this latter event that Mrs. Almond gave the little party I've mentioned. Her daughter was to marry a stout young stockbroker, a boy of twenty. It was thought a very good thing. Chapter 5 Mrs. Penniman, with more buckles and bangles than ever, came of course to the entertainment, accompanied by her niece. The doctor, too, had promised to look in later in the evening. There was to be a good deal of dancing, and before it had gone very far, Marion Almond came up to Catherine in company with a tall young man. She introduced the young man as a person who had a great desire to make our heroine's acquaintance, and as a cousin of Arthur Townsend, her own intended. Marion Almond was a pretty little person of seventeen, with a very small figure and very big sash, to the elegance of whose manners matrimony had nothing to add. She already had all the airs of a hostess, receiving the company, shaking her fan, saying that with so many people to attend to, she should have no time to dance. She made a long speech about Mr. Towson's cousin, to whom she administered a tap with her fan before turning away to other cares. Catherine had not understood at all what she said. Her attention was given to enjoying Marion's ease of manner and flow of ideas, and to looking at the young man, who was remarkably handsome. She had succeeded, however, as she often failed to do when people were presented to her, in catching his name, which appeared to be the same as that of Marion's little stockbroker. Catherine was always agitated by an introduction. It seemed a very difficult moment, and she wondered that some people, her new acquaintance at this moment, for instance, should mind it so little. She wondered what she ought to say and what would be the consequences of her saying nothing, 
the consequences at present were very agreeable. Mr. Townsend, leaving her no time for embarrassment, began to talk with an easy smile as if he had known her for a year. What a delightful party! What a charming house! What an interesting family! What a pretty girl your cousin is! These observations, in themselves of no great profundity, Mr. Townsend seemed to offer for what they were worth, and as a contribution to an acquaintance. He looked straight into Catherine's eyes. She answered nothing, she only listened and looked at him, and he, as if he expected no particular reply, went on to say many other things in the same comfortable and natural manner. Catherine, though she felt tongue-tied, was conscious of no embarrassment. It seemed proper that he would talk and that she should simply look at him. What made it natural was that he was so handsome, or rather, as she phrased it to herself, so beautiful. The music had been silent for a while, but it suddenly began again, and then he asked her, with a deeper, intenser smile, if she would do him the honour of dancing with him. Even to this inquiry she gave no audible assent. She simply let him put his arm around her waist. As she did so, it occurred to her more vividly than it had ever done before that this was a singular place for a gentleman's arm to be, and in a moment he was guiding her around the room in a harmonious rotation of the polka. When they paused, she felt that she was red, and then, for some moments, she stopped looking at him. She found herself and looked at the flowers that were painted on her fan. He asked if she would begin again, and she hesitated to answer, still looking at the flowers. Does it make you dizzy? he asked, in a tone of great kindness. Then Catherine looked up at him. He was certainly beautiful, and not at all red. Yes, she said. She hardly knew why, for dancing had never made her dizzy. Ah oh, well, in that case, said Mr. Townsend, we will sit still and talk. I will find a good place to sit. He found a good place, a charming place, a little sofa that seemed meant only for two persons. The rooms by this time were very full, the dancers increased in number, and people stood close in front of them, turning their backs, so that Catherine and her companion seemed secluded and unobserved. We will talk, the young man had said, but he still did all the talking. Catherine leaned back in her place, with her eyes fixed upon him, smiling and thinking him very clever. He had features like young men in pictures. Catherine had never seen such features, so delicate, so chiseled and finished, among the young New Yorkers whom she passed in the streets and met at parties. He was tall and slim, but looked extremely strong. Catherine thought he looked like a statue, but a statue would not talk like that, and above all, would not have eyes of so rare a colour. He had never been at Mrs. Almond's before. He felt very much like a stranger, and it was very kind of Catherine to take pity on him. He was Arthur Townsend's cousin, not very near, several times removed, and Arthur had brought him to present him to the family. In fact, he was a great stranger in New York. It was his native place, but he had not been there for many years. He had been knocking about the world and living in faraway lands, and had only come back a month or two before. New York was very pleasant, only he felt very lonely. You see, people forget you, he said, smiling at Catherine with his delightful gaze, while he leaned forward obliquely, turning toward her with his elbows on his knees. It seemed to Catherine that no one who had once seen him would ever forget him, but though she made this reflection, she kept it to herself, almost as you would keep something precious. They sat there for some time. He was very amusing. He asked her about the people that were near them. He tried to guess who some of them were, and he made the most laughable mistakes. He criticized them very freely in a positive, offhand way. 
Catherine had never heard anyone, especially any young man, talk just like that. It was the way a young man might talk in a novel, or better still in a play on the stage, close before the footlights, looking at the audience, and with everyone looking at him, so that you wondered at his presence of mind. And yet, Mr. Townsend was not like an actor. He seemed so sincere, so natural. This was very interesting, but in the midst of it, Marion Almond came pushing through the crowd with a little ironical cry when she found these young people still together, which made everyone turn around and cost Catherine a conscious blush. Marion broke up their talk and told Mr. Townsend, whom she treated as if she were already married and had become her cousin, to run away to her mother, who had been wishing for the last half hour to introduce him to Mr. Armand. We shall meet again, he said to Catherine as he left her, and Catherine thought it a very original speech. Her cousin took her by the arm and made her walk about. I needn't ask you what you think of Morris, the young girl exclaimed. Is that his name? I don't ask you what you think of his name, but what you think of himself, said Marion. Oh, nothing particular, Catherine answered, dissembling for the first time in her life. I have half a mind to tell him that, cried Marion. It will do him good. He's so terribly conceited. Conceited, said Catherine, staring. So Arthur says, and Arthur knows about him. Oh, don't tell him, Catherine murmured imploringly. Don't tell him he's conceited. I've told him a dozen times. At this profession of audacity, Catherine looked down at her little companion in amazement. She supposed it was because Marion was going to be married that she took so much on herself. But she wondered, too, whether when she herself should become engaged, such exploits would be expected of her. Half an hour later, she saw her aunt Pennyman sitting in the embrasure of a window, with her head a little on one side, and her gold eyeglass raised to her eyes, which were wandering about the room. In front of her was a gentleman, bending forward a little, with his back toward Catherine. She knew his back immediately, though she had never seen it, for when he had left her at Marion's instigation, he had retreated in the best order, without turning round. Morris Townsend, the name had already become very familiar to her, as if someone had been repeating it in her ear for the last half hour. Morris Townsend was giving his impressions of the company to her aunt, as he had done to herself. He was saying clever things, and Mrs. Penniman was smiling, as if she approved of them. As soon as Catherine had perceived this, she moved away. She would not have liked him to turn round and see her. But it gave her pleasure, the whole thing, that he should talk with Mrs. Penniman, with whom she lived, and with whom she saw and talked with every day. That seemed to keep him near her, and to make him even easier to contemplate than if she herself had been the object of his civilities. And that Aunt Lavinia should like him, should not be shocked or startled by what he said, this also appeared to the girl a personal gain, for Aunt Lavinia's standard was extremely high, planted as it was over the grave of her late husband, in which, as she had convinced everyone, the very genius of conversation was buried. One of the almond boys, as Catherine called him, invited our heroine to dance a quadrille, and for a quarter of an hour her feet at least were occupied. This time she was not dizzy, her head was very clear. Just when the dance was over, she found herself in the crowd, face to face with her father. Dr. Sloper had usually a little smile, never a very big one, and with his little smile, playing in his clear eyes and on his neatly shaved lips, he looked at his daughter's crimson gown. Is it possible that this magnificent person is my child? He said. You would have surprised him if you had told him so, 
but it was a literal fact that he almost never addressed his daughter save in the ironical form. Whenever he addressed her, he gave her pleasure, but she had to cut her pleasure out of the piece, as it were. There were portions left over, light remnants and snippets of irony, which she never knew what to do with, which seemed too delicate for her own use. And yet Catherine, lamenting the limitations of her understanding, felt that they were too valuable to waste, and had a belief that if they passed over her head, they yet contributed to the general sum of human wisdom. I am not magnificent, she said mildly, wishing that she had put on another dress. You are sumptuous, opulent, expensive, her father rejoined. You look as if you had 80,000 a year. Well, so long as I haven't, said Catherine illogically. Her conception of her prospective wealth was as yet very indefinite. So long as you haven't, you shouldn't look as if you had. Have you enjoyed your party? Catherine hesitated a moment, and then, looking away. I'm rather tired, she murmured. I've said that this entertainment was the beginning of something important for Catherine. For the second time in her life, she made an indirect answer, and the beginning of a period of dissimulation is certainly a significant date. Catherine was not so easily tired as that. Nevertheless, in the carriage, as they drove home, she was as quiet as if fatigue had been her portion. Dr. Sloper's manner of addressing his sister Lavinia had a good deal of resemblance to the tone he had adopted toward Catherine. Who was the young man that was making love to you? he presently asked. Oh, my good brother, murmured Mrs. Penniman in deprecation. He seemed uncommonly tender. Whenever I looked at you for half an hour, he had the most devoted air. The devotion was not to me, said Mrs. Penniman. It was to Catherine. He talked to me of her. Catherine had been listening with all her ears. Oh, Aunt Penniman, she exclaimed faintly. He's very handsome. He's very clever. He expressed himself with a great deal, a great deal of felicity, her aunt went on. He is in love with this regal creature then? The doctor inquired humorously. Oh, father, cried the girl, still more faintly, devoutly thankful the carriage was dark. I don't know that, but he admired her dress. Catherine did not say to herself in the dark, my dress only. Mrs. Pennyman's announcement struck her by its richness, not by its meagerness. You see, said her father, he thinks you have 80,000 a year. I don't believe he thinks that, said Mrs. Pennyman. He's too refined. He must be tremendously refined not to think of that. Well, he is, Catherine exclaimed before she knew it. I thought you'd gone to sleep, her father answered. The hour has come, he added to himself. Lavinia is going to get up a romance for Catherine. It's a shame to play such tricks on the girl. What is the gentleman's name? He went on aloud. I didn't catch it, and I didn't like to ask him. He asked to be introduced to me, said Mrs. Penniman, with a certain grandeur. But you know how indistinctly Jefferson speaks. Jefferson was Mr. Armand. Catherine Dare, what was the gentleman's name? For a minute, if it had not been for the rumbling of the carriage, you might have heard a pin drop. I don't know, Aunt Lavinia, said Catherine very softly. And with all his irony, her father believed her. Good night.